0: Hello, I'm Juliet Jakes, welcoming you back to the Sweet 212 Sessions. As those of you who listened to my conversations with artists Alona Sagar and Erica Scorsi will know, our plan to relaunch Sweet 212 as a fortnightly programme with alternating free and subscriber-only episodes were put on hold by the coronavirus epidemic, which has brought much of the United Kingdom's cultural life to a standstill. Instead, I'm recording a series of interviews with contemporary artists, writers, filmmakers, and others about their work conducted via Skype, so apologies in advance for the diminished audio quality, and more spontaneous than our usual output. The idea is to give a snapshot of the arts in the United Kingdom and hopefully beyond in the 21st century, through individual conversations with people about their work, seeing which political concerns engage them, and how the socio-economic conditions of the time have affected their practices. All of these will be available for free via SoundCloud, but I'd still encourage you to subscribe at patreon.com slash suite212, as they still take time to plan and record. You can also make a one-off donation at donorbox.org slash suite 212. Today, I'm talking to Owen Hathley, a writer and journalist who was born in Southampton, England in 1981. He received a PhD from Birkbeck College in 2011 for the thesis The Political Aesthetics of Americanism. He writes regularly on architecture, culture and politics for Architectural Review, Dazeen, The Guardian and The London Review of Books, among others. He's published 10 books, Militant Modernism, 2009, A Guide to the New Ruins of Great Britain in 2010, Uncommon, An Essay on Pulp in 2011, Across the Plaza in 2012, A New Kind of Bleak, also 2012, Landscapes of Communism in 2015, The Ministry of Nostalgia and The Chaplain Machine in 2016, Trans-Europe Express, in 2018, and The Adventures of Owen Hathley in the Post-Soviet Space, also 2018. Red Metropolis, an essay on the Government of London, will be published by Repeater in late 2020. Owen has also edited and introduced an updated edition of Ian Nenn's Nenn's Towns in 2013, written text for The Brutalist, celebrating post-war Southampton exhibition at the K6 Gallery, and contributed a long essay and picture research to Christopher Herwig's Soviet metro stations in 2009. Between 2006 and 2010, he wrote the blog, Sit Down, Man, You're a Bloody Tragedy. He is currently the culture editor at Tribune magazine. Owen, welcome to Sweet 212.
1: Good
0: afternoon. Well, I should say welcome back to Sweet 212, because, of course, you were on our resonant show many times, talking about George Orwell, Marky Smith, and the art and culture of the um, October Revolution. But this is the first time we've had you on to actually discuss your own work in, in depth.
1: I, I sort of see my role in Sweet 212 as being similar to that Kenneth Williams in Hancock's Half Hour. I could pop up regularly, but not not one of the main cast. I saw
0: it more like Round the Horn, but um, okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know,
0: listeners, that I kind that makes of... makes
1: uh... to the Sid James? <laughs>
0: <laughs> listeners, that kind of witty rapport will probably give you some idea that, you know, Owen and I are quite close friends and have known each other for years now since I moved to London in 2011 and sort of got started to get to know a lot of people who knew each other through the blogging circuit of the 2000s. And Owen, that's where I'd like to start talking to you about your work. I know that blogging was a route into nonfiction writing Mm. for you. And I wonder if you'd like to just sort of start the show by talking about how you got into that blogging circle, who was part of it, what sort of subjects you were covering and what the sort of intellectual milieu around it was like.
1: Sure. I suppose just for people that don't know what it is at all, I suppose I'll be as as sort of straightforward as as I can. I suppose there were kind of two consecutive blogging scenes of which I was in the second and they both kind of had a sort of feeling of being the music press in exile a little bit. In most cases, though, not all, people that had sort of religiously read the music press in the 80s and 90s and had sort of come of age in the 2000s, in the very early 2000s, when that sort of discourse just didn't exist. It's kind of odd to think of now because it's our Weimar Republic, but the 2000s was such a sort of cultural desert that the kind of emergence of interesting discussion of culture on the Internet was an incredibly exciting thing for a time. So there were kind of like two cliques, I suppose. There was one around the forum I Love Music and writers like Tom Ewing and Mark Sinker. And there was another one which sort of intersected with it a little bit around Mark Fisher and his kind of group of people that had all been at Warwick University and the forum that they set up called Census. And that's sort of where I came in and that I kind of lurked and then posted on Descensus Started a blog around that time, and I guess a group emerged after a bit of time, which I suppose by 2009-10 consisted of Mark Fisher, Nina Power, Dominic Fox, to a certain degree people that were involved with the SWP at the time, like Richard Seymour and Ninja Bhattacharya and James Meadway, Anwen Crawford, Daniel Barrow. And also there was a sort of slightly different group that was happening kind of late on of Carl Neville, Rian e. Jones, Alex Niven, who else was in there, Phil Knight, Wayne Casper, the mysterious Wayne Casper. A lot of those people ended up doing zero books. So this was a kind of group of people that were writing about music, television, politics, philosophy, in a very sort of interdisciplinary way. There was an element of it that, Richard King very scathingly called recently cosplay autodidacticism, which is that we were all actually in academia as postgraduates, or in the case of a couple of those people actually as teachers, but we were all sort of like, came across as if we were much more marginal than we actually were. But that's what that was. And that's where I began playing with writing in one way or another. It was a good school. I don't think much of it bears much close examination now in the way that your school coursework tends not to bear much close examination.
0: That's interesting you know obviously since Mark Fisher's death there's been a lot more attention paid to his work really than than when he was alive culminating in the big K-punk volume of blog posts that came out last year with Repeater which of course he helped to set up You say that maybe it doesn't bear that much um, examination now, but I'm interested in, you know, how it provided a point of access into writing and what it allowed you to do that the mainstream media didn't. You've just sort of alluded to it as a music press in exile. Mm. And maybe in part it's a consequence of the dumbing down and sort of loss of ambition of the music press during the 1990s. I mean, you'll often hear people talk about the enemy running an obituary for Jean-Paul Sartre in 1980 which was sort of unimaginable even by the mid 90s. You read an interview yeah, with a group like Stereolab and Stereolab had quite a sort of diverse range of political and intellectual influences. And yet the interviewers are just sort of interested and asking them about which you know, lounge core records they're listening to.
1: Hey, the lounge um, core element was pretty important.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, not knocking and a lounge if, element. If, if, if I were though.
1: given the choice to lounge core and, and castoritis, I would choose lounge core. But...
0: <laughs> well, fair but, enough. Yeah. I'm interested in what type of cultural coverage that blogging scene allowed you to do. You know, were you sort of covering subjects that were deemed off limits by the mainstream media, either because they were too obscure or politically undesirable? Were you working, you know, most of those writers you talked about were sort of taking a politicised approach to culture?
1: Yeah.
0: And... Do you think that was happening because of the really rather poor state of the British left at that point?
1: It was the poor state of the British left, but also the British left wasn't in a fantastic state in the 1990s either, but that stuff still kind of hung over a bit. One of the kind of interesting and sad things that happened to kind of younger people in that cohort, well, we're not necessarily younger now, but people that those of us that are kind of were younger at the time, like me or Brian or Alex Nevin has been finding all of our kind of music journalist heroes from the 1990s turn out to be absolute melts. That shouldn't have been so surprising to us as it was. If you read Dorian Linsky's Revolutions Per Minute, that's how music and politics were talked about in the kind of milieu of the 2000s, in those magazines and those newspapers, in this really obvious way. All the kind of fireworks, these sort of intellectual fireworks of reading something like K-Punk were such a relief after. Ghost Town went to number one during the riots. What's happened to all the political songs? You know, all of this sort of stuff, which was so bloody tedious and so lecturing, it was much more exciting to read the kind of weirder connections between these things that someone like Mark was making. But in a way, it's probably a mistake to see that as a thing that was necessarily the political left anyway. And, you know, some of the people in that cohort were either apolitical or have crept rightwards in the last few years. Um, so it's not even necessarily that we were all right and right on and they were all wankers, but there was definitely a sense in which we took things a lot more seriously the kind of belief that this stuff actually mattered. That was almost a kind of article of faith that it was really, really important and it mattered. So that's the big difference.
0: I was sort of asking about you know whether you were covering subjects that were deemed off-limits in mass media. because Yeah, I mean, so, 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 so I guess a lot.
1: kind of typical... You know, like, Mark would write about television constantly. And this was actually a thing that some of the music press generation, when they were blogging, were always great at. A lot of K-Punk was Mark watching telly and getting really angry at telly because he thought telly should be good and informative and experimental and interesting, and had grown up believing that it could be and that this was in, in some way part of its calling. Ian Penman's block, The Pillbox, was always hysterical because you would have, like... The typical post would be like him watching Channel Four late on one Tuesday evening and finding that they were screening Demi Moore's striptease, and just being like, you know, these are the people that used to, you know, introduce me to Tarkovsky in 1980, and now the best thing they can think of to put on a Tuesday evening is Demi Moore in striptease, and he would go on to this like massive kind of prolonged rant about this. And Whereas the kind of general cultural space of that point. You can kind of garner quite well if you kind of watch episodes of Peep Show from the time. I think that was a sitcom that was very good at capturing that. And I think I like a lot of the sitcoms at that time. And the the, the people writing it probably were deeply attached to that very boring time and very upset when it ended, very similarly to the thick of it. But, you know, the, the sort of constant kind of reflexive irony and deflation and nothing matters, nothing has ever mattered. Either everything's always been brilliant or everything's always been shit and there's no kind of peaks and troughs in culture. There's no change in culture It doesn't do anything. It doesn't mean anything. It's just stuff that happens. There's one reason I think we're all really into Alan Badiou, which was a figure that doesn't get mentioned much nowadays. But he was a really big figure for the blogs because of his evident belief that there had been a restoration, a cultural and political restoration in the late 80s and early 1990s, which he's memorably summed up, I think, in, in the phrase, there are only bodies and languages. And that was all that that kind of period could discuss was bodies and languages and that anything else was kind of incomprehensible to them. And I think that's probably a very grandiose way of describing what it was like reading Guardian culture pages in 2004.
0: What's interesting is around about the turn of the last decade, so 10 years ago, it felt like people from that milieu, that blogging circle... And people like myself who were doing something quite similar at the time, but not actually part of that group. You know, I was writing uh, a lot of film articles for magazines like Film Waves, which is long gone now. But doing this politicised film criticism that I think would have fitted quite well into the blogging circle if I'd been in that place at the time. But, you know, people like you and I, Mark Fisher, a few others were at least occasionally getting breaks in publications like The Guardian, The New Statesman. Zero Books launched and often those Zero Books were either collections or grew out of people's blogs. Pretty much all of them actually. Books are taken more seriously by commentators I think and reviewers so the books got noticed a lot more than articles would have done. Yeah. And it felt like sort of some ideological space was being given to people on the left, perhaps because the centre were so sure of their comprehensive victory over the left. And I wonder if we could talk a bit about how you started to write for more established publications as a result of your blogging, what that was like, what sort of things you were being asked to write, and how you felt about the formats you were able to write in in those
1: spaces? Yeah, that's a big one. The first people that paid me to write were New Humanist, who I've written... On and off for ever since in two thousand and seven, and the reason they did that was because I had written a very very long kind of overwritten review of the v as Modernism exhibition. They had this kind of Modernism retrospective, and I think two thousand and six. Lots of it ended up in my first book, Militant Modernism. It was read by the editor um, because someone else who had a blog who was already writing for New Humanist had been late. Like, you should read this person. And he read and was like, oh, this is more interesting than the review we published. So, you know, there's always a sort of roundabout route. I can't think of there was many times when people just happened on the blog. Like the New Statesman connection was similarly kind of convoluted. So I wrote for a travel website, which was sort of connected a little bit through some of the blogs, which Anne Ward in Glasgow edited called Nothing to See Here. And they would have articles about places that were... Unusual or interesting, and kind of non touristy tourist destinations, I suppose. And I'd written about an area of Southampton called Western Shore where you've got a council estate with a beach, basically. Five, I think, tower blocks with a beach attached. So I wrote about that, and that got noticed by Jonathan Meads because he read that website for one reason or another. And he then sent that to, or sent at least some of my writing to Ian Irvine, who was then the culture editor of the New Statesman. So there's quite often both of those examples. There was someone older and better connected than me who put in a word. And I don't want to imply talking about this sort of thing that you can go on the internet and it's all amazingly accessible and you can kind of publish your genius and then people will automatically notice you and then pluck you out of obscurity. That's never how it's worked. And it wasn't even how the blogs worked. Like the blogs were always connected to people that had actual real clout. The obvious example being Simon Reynolds, who I got to blurb my first book, because we all loved Simon, we all do still love Simon. He had always been deeply connected with this stuff, because he was connected with the Warwick scene. And I didn't go to Warwick, and I was too young to be part of that scene. And I doubt I would have been part of it at the time. They were very into things that I've never really been been into, like neoliberalism and psychedelics. So there were sort of pre-existing actual networks that linked you to the press. The has had loads of music writers writing for it. So a lot of people got their first gig at The Wire, for instance, although I didn't until a little while later when, when Mark was actually briefly on the editorial there. So that was the route. I'd started doing freelance work for The Guardian after I'd been doing about a year at The New Statesman, mainly doing book reviews before the editor changed and they were less keen on my presence. So I'd been kind of spotted from that and then The Guardian began with, I think, a review of... There were two things, I think, in quite close succession. One about a TV show about the Park Hill Estate in Sheffield and one an exhibition about Metroland, about the kind of suburban development of Northwest London, which are very kind of broadsheety subjects. You know, I suppose the fact that I wrote about them in a different way didn't change the fact that the subjects were not particularly scaring the horses. It's just that they were both things I took very, very, very seriously. That kind of sense of taking the subject and yourself enormously seriously, again, would kind of get you noticed very quickly by editors, because most of the people that wrote for them did not. I think after Zero Books, a lot of us ended up dabbling in broadsheets to one degree or another. Some people didn't at all. I mean, some people's writing was always too kind of experimental or rebarbative. Dominic Fox didn't end up doing hot takes, which is a tragedy because they would have been brilliant. But a lot of the other writers whose writing was a lot more kind of occasional, let's say, we did end up doing hot takes. And I was at SIF for a while on contract. Comment is it's free on contract. In, I think, 2011 and 2012, when Becky Gardner was editor of Comment. And Becky brought in a lot of left voices who were then immediately purged when Jonathan Friedland took over from her, myself among them. But to be completely honest, I don't think I was particularly great at it. I got quite tired of a lot of that work and it didn't pay particularly well. And it would get in the way of other work that I wanted to do. There were other people involved that were really good at that job, where it was a lot more just straightforwardly political. Richard Seymour put in a huge amount of work into becoming a good comment journalist and was sacked out of McCarthyism, whereas I was sacked because of McCarthyism, but also my columns weren't very good. So that should answer your question.
0: You talk about is free and I was in a position around about the same time as you, where I could have gone down that route, and indeed I had a meeting with someone at The Guardian to talk about this in, I think, 2013. I'd been writing quite regularly for the New States, but I wasn't sort of obliged to have an opinion every week, and quite a lot of my pieces for them were art or literature or film reviews. Sometimes they'd let me do something quite weird. Often I interviewed people. So it was more a sort of open space in the way that the old blogs were, rather than a regular column, which was something that I nearly did. I think summer 2011, I'd been writing for The Guardian for about a year, and it had gone better than I expected. And I was looking at other columnists, of my age, Amelia, mostly like LGBT columnists. So people like Laurie Penny, who just seemed to sort of permanently be the object of scorn online. It didn't really look like a lot of fun. People like Owen Jones, who had to go on TV after the riots with David Starkey and had to come up with a response to yeah. David Starkey saying that the riots had happened in 2011 because, quote, the whites have become black yeah. and faced no end of opprobrium. For not responding to that strongly enough. And I thought, well, I have no idea how I would react to somebody yeah. saying that. You know, I like to think I would just start screaming at them to shut up. And of course, if you do that, you get orders to leave the studio and you don't get invited back. I was looking at the Johan Hari scandal at the Independent, big kind of plagiarism. I scandal. mean, Hari
1: is a good example of the kind of left writing that existed at the time that we all wanted to be anything other than. Although he was sort of broadly on the left, things like his fabricated interview of Tony Negri and his fabricated dispatch from Dubai, these were absolutely the sort of things where we were kind of like, these are really important and interesting things that you are not taking seriously. You know, kind of like writing about Negri, kind of like, ah, he was a terrorist. He speak of the Italian accent in a funny voice, you know. And then just like, actually just like interspersing loads of stuff from Negri or Negri into your Negri article um as Howry did or the dubai piece similarly most of which proved to be totally made up but they were the sort of commissions that we would have died for kind of like you get to go and interview negri you get to go to dubai and write about its history and politics like we would all have been like yes please and he refused to take them seriously and plagiarized his way through the copy and i think this a lot of this sort of stuff happened before the kind of corbinite battle lines were drawn I don't think Hari was particularly anti-Corbyn, as I recall. And he was kind of a mentor in some ways to Owen Jones, who I have a lot of respect for. And I think that 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 was that kind of thing of like, these people aren't even making any fucking effort. You know, that's what got us so infuriated. And so at times it wasn't even political. Yeah, I mean... It's just like you're being a lazy bastard.
0: Well, this is it. I mean, during the Corbyn period, we're kind of drifting slightly off topic now, but during the Corbyn period, the New Statesman journalist, Stephen Bush acquired much more respect from people on the left not because of his politics because they weren't our politics but just because he was seen to do his job properly he was seen to take a you know, reasonably objective approach yeah. to yeah. his subject and be led by the facts and have sort of sociological attitude to what he was doing and you know I have no problem with people not sharing my politics you know what the problem I have long had with British journalism and the reason why I am no longer really any part of it except as an arts critic writing for arts magazines is not because people have an ideology that I find objectionable, although lots of them do. It's the sort of sense of egotism, venality, and yes, fundamental unseriousness and entitlement that runs right through it. But it's interesting to think about these two figures, Johann Hari and Jonathan Friedland, who had not really connected before. The Hari plagiarism in the Antonio Negri interview was exposed by a group called the Deterritorial Support Group, who wrote a blog about Hari's practices. And their central point wasn't just that Hari was a plagiarist and somebody to not be taken seriously. Their main point about Hari's interview with Negri was that Hari and figures like Hari determined the left limits of acceptable discourse in the United Kingdom. And that point, of course, got lost, partly because the phone hacking scandal happened at the same time and that, of course, overwhelmingly involved the right wing media. So there were lots of people on the political right who were delighted that someone on the left seemed to be similarly corrupt in their practices. Yeah. And of course, there's no real connection between Harris's behaviour and the industrial scale criminality that was going on at certain right wing media outlets. But yeah,
1: you know, it's the difference between uh, Evelyn Waugh and James Elroy. OK, you're going to have to explain that. <laughs> in the, the james elroy crime novels being about huge and multifarious scandals of corruption and evil which i think was very much the sort of thing that that went to court in leveson whereas this was petty journalists being petty and it upset mainly other journalists whereas leveson was a different order of magnitude and there's a hell of a lot of people be in jail who aren't and no one thought johan Hari should be in jail they just thought that the commissions that he got should have been given to people that were competent
0: um and yeah that was absolutely my feeling and i think watching those two things, the Levison inquiry, but also the way the independent newspaper handled the Hari scandal and basically kept on to him as long as possible, didn't run any kind of full investigation into his journalistic practices. You know, there was a similar scandal in the New York Times with a journalist called Jason Blair, and the New York Times ran an 8,000 word article looking into all of Blair's journalistic malpractice, whereas a few years later, Johan Hari popped up with a book about the war on drugs that have been blurred by
1: Hillary Clinton. Didn't he write and produce The Truths for Russell Brand? He did, yes. Which uh, is interesting given Russell Brand's later role in what is unfortunately the most famous article by Mark Fisher.
0: Yeah, that's Mark Fisher's Exiting the Vampire's Castle article from 2013, I think, yeah. which was I think the fairest way or the kindest way I can describe it, is a howl of frustration at the way certain left-wing online discourses were going at the time. And of course, this was I think a real, this period was a real nadir for the British left. The Labour Party under Ed Miliband was this kind of empty husk, it had very little direction, very little sense of purpose, there was nothing to excite anybody, there was nothing to unite anyone. If the Socialist Workers' Party hadn't collapsed amidst the Comrade Delta allegations, it was about to, and it kind of felt like the extra parliamentary left was quite fragmented, it was fighting a number of different battles due to the coalition government's austerity policies. And, you know, Mark, who I know was getting more and more frustrated with online discourse at the time, wrote a long article going for sour-faced identarians, (laughs) which, of course, led to Mark being interpreted as a kind of old left, anti-identity politics kind of thinker, which he wasn't.
1: No, he absolutely Um, wasn't. Although that article, it made itself a hostage to fortune in all sorts of ways. If you read it now, and it is in the big book, it's a very weird mixture of things on which he was absolutely vindicated particularly on what a cesspit social media can be and stuff which really doesn't bear up well, particularly on Russell Brand. And just as an intervention, if you want to convince people of your opinions, like calling them all vampires is not a great idea. And I think that it had an element of bad faith to it from the start of just like, you know, discourse nowadays is far too obnoxious and rude. That's because of all you fucking vampires. You know, there was an element of formative contradiction about it that was really difficult. But I mean, looking back on it, I think it was in some ways the product of disappointment. Going back to Ed Miliband, and this is kind of interesting given what's happening in Labour Party now, what upset people by 2013 about Ed Miliband was that a certain amount of people had a certain amount of kind of hope for him and for a kind of shift away from Blairism that he initially seemed to represent. You know, it was not as full-throated as it became later, but it, 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 but it had started. And I know for a fact that Mark joined Labour Party around this time, in the early 2010s, other people involved with the blog scene seen in Zero Books joined the Labour Party around this time, like, like Alex Niven, you know, all pre-Corbyn. And by then, by 2013, you know, nothing had really happened. Nothing had kind of shifted. And there was this kind of long period, basically, between the riots and the Scottish referendum in which everyone tried to pretend that everything had gone back to normal. And what happens when that happens is the left kicks itself in the face repeatedly. So, you know, a lot of the energy that that had gone into the student protests in 2010, which was the first time the left had come back in any really significant way in Britain since the poll tax, really. So, you know, the first time in 20 years. That kind of resurgence of energy at the end of 2010 had all fallen into Twitter sectarianism, basically. So that was there was a feeling of disappointment there. There was also a feeling of disappointment, I think, because of the fact that social media had replaced the blogs, that on blogs you could kind of stretch out a certain amount and kind of like test out an idea i don't want to be too nostalgic about it because blog comments boxes were horrible and actually some of the people that are awful on twitter are exactly the same people that were awful in the blogs um there's particular people that i think of where i'm just like wow you're still there incredible you know of another load of people half your age to bully but there's a kind of the sort of blog dream that you know we would all start our own little kind of newspaper or magazine, kind of fanzine style, and we could all kind of have our own little imagined community, which in many cases became an actual one, had just been replaced with snarking in 140 characters, and replaced with the kind of you know the sense of like finding something unexpected, being replaced with the Facebook algorithm, where Facebook decides what you want to see on the basis of what it already thinks you want to see. So these, I think, had just led to this great feeling of, of disappointment. And my own disappointment was the fact that Mark wrote it at all, because Mark was constantly talking after capitalist realism came out and became actually very successful, and rightly so, that we were all going to be you know, great kind of media entryists, and we're going to you know, go off and found think tanks and found our own media organisations and go off and be some sort of combination of like Willy Munzenberg and Keith Allen and the very British coup. Of course, what actually happened is we were all arguing with dicks on the internet And I was very much like, why are you wasting your time with it? You know, why does it actually matter what these people think about this particular issue? The the degree to which it seemed to be a kind of waste of time and energy really, really struck me at the time. In the end, all of those things did happen. There did end up being think tanks like Autonomy that brought the kind of ideas that were popular with us lot then into the mainstream of the main opposition party. There did end up being media organisations such as Navarra and New Socialist and Tribune, which did function as, as left-wing outliers. But at that point, the only person that was really doing that, and who I think Mark was very kind of leave Britney alone about, was uh, Owen Jones, awesome. also Russell Brand. And I think Owen was and is worth defending. Brand, I don't feel the same way. I agree. Owen
0: Jones at the time was constantly telling people to Join the Labour Party. And this was a running joke on the left during the 2010 to 2015 period. You would often see people use the hashtag why not join the Labour Party whenever the Labour Party did something objectionable. Indeed, I listened back a while ago to the Navarra Media episode with James Butler and Aaron Bastani after the Labour Party conference in 2014. (laughs) And James Butler says something along the lines of, you know, all I expect from the Labour Party is for it to be the Labour Party. And (laughs) it continually meets that dismal expectation year after year decade after decade and they go through the you know frankly paltry offer that's going to be in the labor manifesto in 2015 and then end the episode by saying there you go payback 2015 which is a reference to a hashtag that owen jones had been using on twitter quite a lot um and of course we didn't get our payback in 2015 instead we got a a rather unexpected shift to the left, which which I think only Stephen Bush of the, the major political commentators really saw coming, partly because he did yeah. his journalism with his ear to the ground in a way that most other people don't. And I mean, that certainly felt like a big sea change, because yeah. it was. You know, for the likes of you and I, who had longed for a re-emergent left in this country and had followed the austerity period with a, a great degree of horror in that it seemed that there was very little opposition to austerity as the political climate. You know, I think you and I sent some sort of, if not opportunity, then at least some, you know, I think it provided some sort of reinvigoration of our own writing practices. It gave us a sense of a project that was bigger than ourselves. And the moment at which I really felt that was the appointment of john MacDonald as shadow chancellor
1: yeah. because
0: i've been to an event that corbyn and MacDonald organized at the houses of parliament called people's parliament in 2014 one or the other would be there they wouldn't both be there and sure enough jeremy corbyn wasn't there on that occasion but john Macdonald, you know often they invited nurses or teachers or whatever you know people who did not normally get a hearing in parliament let alone step foot in it this time they decided to invite a team of people from Zero Books. They invited Mark Fisher, Rian Jones, Alex Niven, and Dan Taylor to hold a panel to discuss what Zero Books did, what they published on Zero, and you know why they set up a publisher published so many books critiquing contemporary capitalism. And so all that period, 2010 to 15, when I was very involved with journalistic circles and moved from sort of quite liberal and centrist circles at the beginning to quite quickly finding the blogging group that we've talked about earlier and becoming friends with people like you and Nina and Dominic and Mark and others, you know, I suddenly felt, okay, when John McDonald was appointed, I suddenly felt, right, okay, you know, our ideas could feed into something. We're not just publishing and speaking into the wind if I had a penny for every event I went to every talk I went to in London between 2010 and 2015 that ended with people saying something along the lines of you know we need to find ways to change people's ideas or we need to find ways to bring socialist ideas back into the public consciousness I paradoxically would have been fairly wealthy and then suddenly That wasn't the paradigm at all the paradigm was something very very different um, yeah
1: there was, if i had a pound for every time there was we need a mont Pelerin society of the left that was the big klaxon and then we kind of did and it didn't quite go as we expected i mean it felt like it came out of nowhere well but... i think what we all, what we all expected I don't know if we're going off topic but i think what we all expected was that it would be like the original kind of mont Pelerin society and that we would take like 20 years maybe to patiently build a thing that then might inform a movement that had a chance of power. And what actually happened with the first Sanders campaign and with um, the 2017 election was that we came incredibly close to winning and we all went a bit weird. We'd gone from like being incredibly marginal to, you know, having a a shot with the kind of like related group around Jacobin, some of whom had some awareness of what was going on in the UK and with with, with us in the UK is that like, yeah, we'd gone from being like nutters that no one wanted to listen to to you know, nearly having the ear of, of the Chancellor.
0: And I mean, obviously, we don't need to relitigate the political history of the Corbyn project because no, that's not. been done plenty. But
1: I mean, I th- I mean it's also worth re- re- remembering that we were one component of a thing we were not the thing.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think, yeah, you you bringing up the 2017 election as the point where things sort of really changed is right because, you know, I really, I really remember quite vividly having a conversation with you in a pub, I think, just before the 2017 election was being called, which is a real low point for the Corbyn project. You know, the 2016 leadership election had been quite successful and in many ways uh, quite funny and a lot of fun. Uh, but yeah. it had really damaged Labour in the polls it had damaged Labour politically it had taken clearly taken quite a lot out of Corbyn no matter how much he tried to pretend otherwise and you know I unlike you you know I come from a background where the Labour Party just barely existed really mm. uh, you know grew up in uh, in in Surrey where I think there's been like two non-Tory MPs elected since 1945 or something you know, at that point, I was pretty close to giving up and we talked about it. I remember you saying to me, look, it's the only chance we've got. That was enough to keep me on board. And then the 2017 election happened. And then after that, I became, yeah, like you say, just went quite weird, really. I um, <laughs> <you know>, became <laughs> very full throated in my defence of of Corbyn, uh, much more oriented towards the Labour Party and parliamentarianism than I had been. And my yeah. own writing became much more ideologically um, infused you know at times I worry it's become a bit tendentious
1: but you know became That's much more... worried about.
0: no well I mean you know I don't, <laughs> I don't worry about it that much otherwise I would uh, I would stop but I don't <laughs> but you know one of the things that that happened in fact you know projects we're both working on were set up in the aftermath of the election I set up suite 212 shortly after the election because I felt that cultural coverage was a bit of a lacuna in the Corbyn project and we'd yeah. swung too far away from the the pendulum of the 2000s when there was only left-wing cultural coverage really and you know the political scene was very kind of moribund and then we went the other way where everything was about this political project and cultural coverage seemed to have fallen by the wayside a bit so that was why i started sweet 212 even things like navarro were not really covering culture very much and when they did it it was more pop culture
1: which is not because they all I mean, most of the people in Navarra are people that have very interesting things to say about culture, so I always thought that was rather a shame. But yeah, I think that's absolutely true, and it's very much the sort of thing that was motivating the Tribune culture section as well. Was 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 that?
0: Yeah, I mean, if we can talk a bit about the the relaunch of Tribune, how you came to be the culture editor.
1: The the thing with the Tribune culture section is that it's kind of been an attempt to <clears throat> get the kind of for want of a better word sort of blog thought into the left and it is a thing that 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 has been important to the british left in a different way to anywhere else that i know of there's probably other examples but here it has had a centrality for a long time that long predates you know the kind of there's nothing else happening so let's all have a big argument about burial thing that was happening in the mid-2000s and you can trace it to things like rock against racism or to the, the the cultural program of the Greater London Council in the 1980s. that the, the British left did have this particular kind of fixation on culture. Those are kind of directly political examples, but you can trace it to Raymond Williams. You know, you can trace it to the kind of interwar years if you want. Although in the interwar, I think it's much more, the interwar stuff is an echo of the real interwar socialist culture that was happening in Germany, in the USSR, and France, in Czechoslovakia. That was the real thing. And the kind of, you know, Isherwood and Orden is the echo of that. But I think from the 60s on, it becomes something really, really important. And I, I wonder why that is. I think certainly one of the examples in terms of this kind of pop cultural stuff that we're all interested in is the the peculiar status of the UK as a country which speaks English. And so therefore, is able to understand the culture of the imperial hegemon in a way that you don't necessarily if you're in Spain or France. So pop culture has always been much more of a thing here because A, we had a sort of access to American pop culture and that huge kind of of, goldmine of stuff that was much more direct. And the other thing being that we had, of course, obliterated our folk culture in the 19th century. Um, which obviously I think is a good thing. I'm all for that. I think salt the earth on on, on which folk folk culture rests, a thing that I've always disagreed with my comrade Alex Niven on. But, you know, north-south differences, perhaps. Because of those two things, I think people in Britain get mass culture in a very particular way and have produced it more than other European countries. That's not to say that, you know, there wasn't like an interesting post-punk scene in Yugoslavia or that, you know, you couldn't like find interesting dance music in like 1990s Berlin or whatever. Of course you could and you can. But there was a particular connection there. So a lot of the stuff that gets written about is retrospective. It has an element, I've talked about this before, I think, of just sort of trying to kind of point out this thing happened. There's a bit that I really thought this is this is what the culture, Tribune culture section is in a in a few seconds clip. This is what it's about, which is in Jeremy Deller's lecture for the Freeze Art Fair that got shown on 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 BBC. This is a rare, interesting cultural thing on the BBC in the last twenty years. He he showed this clip from oh god I don't know some like local TV station in in in, in Michigan of like a sort of Soul Train style dance line. All dancing to numbers by Kraftwerk, and he talks about this particular phenomenon whereby you know this kind of incredibly cold European avant-garde music based on like Russian constructivism and Stockhausen is accepted in Detroit by African Americans as as a dance music, as a sort of futuristic dance music, and so you have all these people doing this incredible dancing to numbers by Kraftwerk, and he goes, you know, whenever I feel a bit sad, I remember that this happened. And the Tribune Culture section, to a very large degree, is pointing out things like that and going, when we feel sad, we remember that this happened. So there's a sense in which maybe it's trying to conjure something into being that once did exist and that now doesn't, which is different to the rest of the magazine, which is very much about a thing that is happening, which is the resurgence, I think, that has currently been, been halted in the last uh, few months but the resurgence nonetheless of the organized left. So what the rest of Tribune does is I think tries to have some serious analysis of that while trying to reconnect with the 20th century left history, which otherwise you're going to get from idiots. Like there was um, a Labour First reading list doing rounds on the internet a few days ago of like their version of Labour history. And I thought, Christ, even if you were very right-wing indeed, if this was what you're going to read on Labour history, it's a thin gruel. There's so uh, such a kind of fascinating and multifaceted and tragic history. And all you're going to do is like read stuff from your own faction about you know the most important thing that ever happened, the two most important things that ever happened, which are in 1985 Neil Kinnock giving a speech expelling one bit of Labour Party, and in 1997 Tony Blair winning an election. And these are the only two things that ever happened. That's Labour history. You know, it's actually the history of the attempts to extend democracy to the majority of people in this country and their workplaces and in their lives rather than in, you know putting an x on a bit of paper every 5 years that's what it is like it's the most important movement that has happened and for it to be kind of reduced to you know the sort of tedious factionalism is really really boring and so we've tried to avoid that and tried to kind of connect it with a wider thing so yeah, it's been a difficult thing, and I think there's the, 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 the you know it's the balance sheet of it is like like all of this the balance sheet of it is unclear, and I do often think that maybe I'm not even the right person for it because I'm to a certain degree too old. You know, I do find talking to younger people, and I've said this many times that I don't really see culture in the same way that they do and saying we are also making music isn't the same thing because i will listen to that music and being a boring old prick i'll listen to it and go i've heard this a million times before like great that you're doing this in this grassroots self-organized way brilliant but like you know if i wanted to listen to crass i'd listen to crass you know if i wanted to listen to tangerine dream i would listen to tangerine dream rather than going to like a music festival in a disused factory in order to listen to someone doing an impersonation tangerine dream but anyway
0: Obviously, you've mentioned there the British left having the fairly major setback of the pretty disastrous result in the 2019 general election, which you and I had the great joy of experiencing together. Not to not to relitigate that that awful night, but you know, it's felt to me that this could possibly have put people like you and I and people who are very interested in left-wing politics and culture in this country Back in the position we were in the mid-2000s at the time of talking to each other, the winner of the interminable Labour leadership contest uh, hasn't been announced yet, but it's almost certainly going to be Sir Keir Starmer QC. Yeah. You've been talking recently about how Starmer's support base is made up of two groups, and they are older people who supported Corbyn and McDonnell. And largely kind of mean well and imagine that they're going to get the 2017 or 2019 manifesto, you know, and the concession that is made is a figure that is more palatable to the mainstream media than Jeremy Corbyn. Someone who
1: doesn't have the MI5 file that Corbyn probably has.
0: Well, exactly. And, you know, Group B is people wanting this restoration of the worst aspects of of new labour yeah and that's the group that you know if they win this sort of factional fight that i think starmer hopes he can somehow paper over yeah that's the group who would really put us back into a position of complete subaltern marginality do you have much hope that we can build a culture and a cultural media that could function as a way of channeling and harnessing and popularizing some of the energy and ideas that fed into the Corbyn project because you know I went to the World Transformed Festival a couple of times and it struck me that the sort of feel of it the tone of it the style of it was actually very you know the thing it reminded me of most was the All Tomorrow's Parties festivals for alternative music in the yeah. 2000s and early 2010s yeah um, and I do wonder if you know given that you know we're certainly not going to have the same level of influence on Labour policy that the networks we're part of had between particularly 2017 and 2019 but do you have any hope that culture can be a useful force for keeping socialist ideas and mainstream discourse contributing to be a part of that
1: so there's i think there's, there's, there's two different things here which i try and take in order firstly on the question of starmer like i've made no secret of the fact that i won't be voting for keir starmer and that i will be voting for rebecca Long Bailey, but my main feeling of Starmer is that I have no idea what he is. His record before becoming DPP is pretty impeccable. His record as DPP is pretty shoddy. You know, he was part of the coup, and, but otherwise kept fairly low. We don't know if he's immediately going to be a restoration. You know, there, there are people around him who I don't find objectionable, and there are people around him who I do find objectionable. What I kind of hope for, I guess, is a sort of division of labour on this sort of stuff. This this is getting into sort of labour factionalist stuff, which I'll try and keep it brief, but I think there are kind of the examples of someone like Attlee or Wilson who were not particularly figures of the left, although Wilson had been, but who kept the left in. And those governments did bad things and they did good things. And most of the good things, by and large, were the work of people like... Bevan and Jenny Lee and, and Tony Benn, who were very much of the left and were allowed to do things. were allowed to do things like the NHS and the Open University and were given a particular, a particular bit of like, OK, you can have your experiment here. Um, Labour Party is, has very seldom been run from the left. And even when it was run from the left in those four years or to a lesser degree in the few years under Lansbury, although even that was minus the ILP, it's been against a right that is enormously strong and influential. One can see it as like, what if we get given a few sops and therefore let's go back to selling papers or throwing bricks at windows during summits, you know, which doesn't enthuse me enormously. But there's a certain amount of like unpleasant realpolitik of like, would we be en- end up being in a movement that would be doing loads of things that we don't like in order to get through some things that we do? And, of course, there are things that we didn't like in, 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 in Corbynism, too. But, you know, there was a sense in which we knew the people at the top were on our side, even if they were pushing through stuff, you know, whether it's second referendum or Liam Byrne as the Midlands mayor, um, putting through things that we knew were not their own politics. So we just don't know. We do not know. But let's say that, you know, there's certain things in which I think the left would have a particular voice. And let's say, you know, one of them would be housing or one of them would be culture. What would be the cultural policy? I don't see the right having any ideas on these two particular issues, for instance. I mean, I don't see the right having ideas anyway, to be, to be completely honest. I've not seen an idea from the Labour right since the early 2000s. And I suppose perhaps because of that, there could be an element of, of them wanting to keep us in the tent because of the fact that they don't have anything themselves.
0: Yeah, I'm sort of interested in how much you feel Tribune can play a part in sort of reformulating a socialist culture in in Britain, really, and whether you have any hope that we can, you know, infiltrate mainstream institutions. <laughs> or Maybe if that partly as a result of the Corbyn project happening, whether yeah, the, so, um, so, so
1: I think one of the one of the great things about this, you know, like every defeat has its lessons, and one of the lessons. Of the 2019 election was, you know, without wanting to sound too kind of swivel-eyed MSM, you know, conspiracy type, is that we were absolutely shafted by the media, and shafted by the media on various levels. You know, we can complain about the Observer, who played, I think, a disgraceful role. We can complain about the New Statesman or about the the BBC or even about the Guardian, even though they ended up backing Labour and the and the actual uh, in terms of who they actually they actually backed when push came to shove. But the people watching the BBC and seeing things like Best for Britain and so on, and their, and their tactical voting guide, was a real lesson in the deep state. And the way of how flimsy it was, you know, you could see happening in real time things like the imaginary assault at the hospital in Leeds. One of the best things about social media, I think, was the way that you could just see that falling apart in, 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 a, in the space of a couple of hours. But yeah, the, the, the media that existed was not our media. It was theirs, and you know, necessarily, we do not have a level playing field. You know, there were plenty, there was plenty of blame to go around, and the, that campaign was run. I think is now clear of st- a staggering ineptitude, in which I think all of us are guilty to one degree or another, including the kind of world transformed left that you and I would be broadly in. I think we buggered it up as well, but there w- I, I cannot. It cannot be gainsaid how much the media screwed us. You know, the the thing that everyone always likes to talk about, rightly so, because it's a good tale, is the Daily Herald. You know, so the Daily Herald is set up in the 1910s, around the time that universal male suffrage is first brought in, around the time that limited female suffrage is first brought in. And George Lansbury is editor. And, you know, you had a serious left wing press. And, of course, the famous thing of what happened to the Daily Herald is that it became The Sun. And it was then brought up by Rupert Murdoch. You know, that, that that kind of belief that we would need our own media sort of disappeared. And I think there was a the sort of idea that we could let the bits of the mainstream media that we liked do it for us. And that means two papers, which are the Daily Mirror and the Guardian. And the Mirror is a commercial paper, which because of think of its, of its working class readership and because of a few kind of unusually principled editors, became a paper that supported the left but was not of it. And similarly, the Guardian is the paper of Manchester mill owners, and it's always been the paper of, you know, <laughs> I guess, of the whatever the, the class equivalent is now of Manchester mill owners. And so there are times in which that would back the left, and times when it wouldn't. You know, it is a thing that could support the left but not be of it. The rest of the press—it's not that they, they don't support the Tories; they are the Tories. They are the you know they are—it's not that they speak on behalf of a particular thing; they are it. You know, the Times and obviously the Mail and the Express and the Observer and so forth, These, they, you know, they, they are part of the enemy politically. They cannot be expected to be anything else. And to kind of yell at them for not being what, what they are is kind of pointless moralism. Of course that's what they are. And so you need to set up something else. And you can't rely, again, on the Guardian and the Mirror to be that, because, again, that's not their role. And again, sort of just yelling at them for not being it is futile. I think yelling at them for the, the the rampant transphobia of some of their columnists is a much better idea. But yelling at them for not being socialists is futile. Of course they're not socialists. They're never going Well, to
0: yelling be- at them about their transphobias proved pretty futile as well. But anyway, carry yeah, on.
1: Well, well, history will absolve us. And that's one reason why I think Long Bailey launching her her campaign rather belatedly in Tribune was such a was 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 a very important thing because it was we need a place where we can talk to each other, and also we need a place where we can talk to each other that isn't Twitter. And a place where we can talk to each other that isn't Facebook. This very sort of position to heal thyself here. I, I inveterately gossip on Twitter, and I, I shouldn't. Um, and it comes partly from the fact that even before the plague arrived, I you know spent most of my day writing at home, and so the the temptation to get into discussion with people that have really strong feelings about Mike Gapes is overpowering. But obviously, that's not, we should be doing things more than that. We should be able to have our own infrastructure in which we can speak to each other. And that then leads to a second point, which is being able to use that infrastructure to talk to others. And that hasn't happened yet. And I think so far, the way of speaking to others has been done via people like Owen Jones, Ellie May O'Hagan, you know, et cetera, Dawn Foster getting into the mainstream media and speaking in it which is great and I don't want to downplay that because I think a lot of what led to the shifts in the last 10 years was just people doing that but it's not enough you've got to be able to have something that can that can be relied upon that can communicate with with your base in a different and more sophisticated way and we and we lack that and that's I think why so much people get so upset about the awfulness of our press is because that is really the only means of communication in a lot of ways, because we don't really have the left media that speaks outside of the left. And I suppose that's culture in a much wider sense. One article that we ran that I was really happy with in the issue that ran after the election was by Marcus Barnett about the, the sort of self organised reading groups and discussion clubs and, and leisure centres and pithead baths and cycling clubs and hiking clubs and musical clubs and so forth that the left had in the Midlands and the North and the Central Belt and South Wales, which were an enormously important part of, of making those places into places that would have previously voted Tory or Liberal or not voted at all, into places that supported some kind of socialist politics. It's that it had been done in a cultural way. You know, it had been done rather than, you know, we will represent you and vote for us every five years. It had become a thing that, that infused the way people lived. And that as a way of looking at culture, but it's probably different to mine, actually. And the mine is kind of like, you know, about sort of artifacts and ideas. Whereas Marcus's idea, which is probably actually more politically useful, is culture as, as a way of life. And there's been kind of little moments, you know, the interwar years in Germany or Russia, or the late 70s and 1980s in Britain, where the line between those two things disappears. And that's what we all want, I think.
0: I agree. That's absolutely what I want. I think that's a good place to conclude. So it just remains for me to say, um, thanks, Owen, for being on the show. Thanks, Julia. I've been your host, Juliette Jakes. This has been another of the Sweet 212 sessions. We'll be back with another one soon. Please do follow the show on Twitter if you're not already, Sweet underscore 212. You can donate to the show at patreon.com slash sweet212. Follow us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash sweet-212. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again soon. Goodbye.